The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke writes this account in Luke chapter 4, 17-19, which is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 61, and at verse 1 and 2. Now what Luke is doing is giving us a snapshot of a particular period in the life of Jesus, of something that he's, he's doing at this time. And what's happening is that Jesus is coming back to his hometown, and this is probably early on in his uh, public life. Probably one of the first speeches that he gives. But it's in his hometown of Nazareth, and, and Luke says that this was Jesus' custom, that he would come into the synagogue and there he would meet with those who had gathered to hear the word of God. Now the synagogues were places that the uh, Israelites had developed in order to have a, have a uh, community session where they could study and read the word of God. Basically, more than just studying it, it was just reading it. And so the synagogues were spread all over the known world at that time. They were, they were buildings that were designed specifically for the purpose of housing copies of the Old Testament, the scriptures, and providing a place for the community to come together, men and women and children and even visitors, and hear the word of God expressed. There was a president that is a minister who was in charge of the synagogue and of, of the order of, of the way they conducted themselves. And he was the one generally who would uh, choose the book that they were to read. Now, in order to understand what was going on, we have to understand that uh, when they, it says the text says that they handed Jesus the book, that they didn't hand him a copy of something that we would be considered a book, that we would think about a book. For instance, this is a book, but this is a folio edition of a book, so that it's not really what they had. They had scrolls. And uh, what what they used for writing material was called papyrus. And it was in a roll. Now, if, if you wonder, and I've always wondered myself, how big were these rolls? How many of them were there? And who had them? Well, an answer to some of these questions is, number one, almost every synagogue in the world, and probably every synagogue in the world, had a complete set of scrolls for the Old Testament and other books as well. So they had a complete set. And each roll contained a book. And the books of the Old Testament at that time were essentially, particularly, the same books that we have, plus they had some other books that they carried along with them that were contemporary books. And they really, again, were not, we're using the wrong term. It's not the book, it's the scroll. And the scroll was made of, of a material that was called papyrus, which I've already mentioned. And it, uh, it came about, it was, it was developed by a city in Phoenicia. It was called Biblos, which is where we get our word Bible. 
So this city claimed that they were the one that, they were the oldest city in the world. And whether that claim is true or not, we're not really sure. But Biblos was the place where they developed the concept of a book. And the book was at that time was a scroll. And the scroll was made up of papyrus, which was the reed that the 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 uh, soft section of the papyrus reed that was developed in Egypt in a place called papyrus. So these reeds were stripped, and then they're placed in cross sections, and then they were pressed down. They they were wet to start with. They were pressed down, and they went through a quite an elaborate process until they finally got them to the point that they were dry enough and supple enough that they could ride on them. So they took these this writing material and they wrote, the scribes did, they wrote the copies of the Old Testament. Each, each scroll was a book. The, the size of the book, basically, to, to give you an idea, if you know what a, a paper towels look like, the size of paper towels, that's about the height of them. The length of the book that Jesus was reading was about 24 feet. So there was a there was material that would, could be stretched out. If you were to, if you had a modern garage, typically the garages of our day are about 24 feet deep. So it would run from the front of your garage to the back of your garage. That's how long the book would be, and it was all one book. And it was written. It was copied by what we call scribes. These men made up a profession that did nothing but copy writings. And specifically with the Israelites, they copied the Old Testament. So that was their job, to make copies of the Old Testament. And it was quite an elaborate process because they went through a number of rituals. They believed they were handling the communication of God to mankind. So they were very careful about how they were copying the Scriptures. And as they copied them down, they copied them, the ones that we had, that Jesus in all likelihood had, was written in Hebrew. And Hebrew, that Hebrew was written without vowels. No vowels, no A, E, I, O, and U. Just consonants. And they were written all together with no spaces and no punctuation marks. And at that time, they were written in a form that was called Bustrophodon, which meant that they as they wrote it, they wrote it this way, and as the ox turns, that's what that word bustrophodon means, as the ox turns, they went back the other way. Then got to this end, went back the other way, back back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, like that. You know, you'd, you'd think, well, how could they read these books if there were no punctuation marks, no spaces, no vowels? How did they read them? You know, it's, and I always wondered that myself until I, I, I studied a little Hebrew, took some classes, and then I looked at some of the text, and it was pretty obvious where the marks, where the spaces should be, and where the punctuation should be, and where the vowels should be. Now, now they did develop what was known as uh, diacritical marks that that uh, substituted these for vowels that helped them make the pronunciation. But what Jesus was reading was a scroll, and it was 24 feet long, 66 chapters, in the book of Isaiah. And he was reading chapter 61. So he had to unroll this book until he got to 61. Now, our chapters and verses didn't come along until the 17th century and later. 
So they didn't have any way that they marked where, where this section ends, this begins, and so forth. They didn't have chapters. We have chapters, and we have verses, but they didn't. They just read the whole book like a book, the whole book. But they knew the text because they'd been reading it every Sabbath day. People in every city all over the known world at that time in these little places called synagogues were opening these scrolls and reading them and the people were hearing them every week, every Saturday. People came. They didn't stay home. They didn't have TV. They weren't, they weren't uh, playing ball. They weren't doing any number of things. They weren't listening to the radio. They weren't listen, reading newspapers. They were at the synagogue on Saturday hearing the Word of God everywhere. And as a matter of fact, on one occasion, one of the writers of the New Testament said that uh, Moses had in every synagogue those who read him every Sabbath. So he said that he, he, he just acknowledged something that we could acknowledge too, and that is that they were reading the Scriptures every week. And people were gathering, the Jews were gathering, the Israelites were gathering, and their friends were coming together, and their families were coming together, and they were reading the Word of God. They, they knew that this was God's communication to them. So, here's Jesus. He's 30 years old, a young man. It's his habit. He's been going to this synagogue on the Sabbath day. It says that was his custom. And they met every, every, every Saturday. So he'd been there every Saturday in his hometown. And as his custom was, he was there. And so the, the president of the synagogue noticed him. And he walked up to him and he handed him the scroll and asked him if he'd like to read it. And he did. So he turned, he rolled the scroll until he got to what we call chapter 61. And he read it. Now, we've read that before we started this lesson. And we have this on the screen right now, a text. And if you, if you were to dissect the text, you would discover that there are seven things that Jesus, seven statements he made that applied to him in this short reading. Seven things. So here he has the, the book. And people who have been expecting something good to happen, that God was going to do something. Isaiah was talking about something wonderful that was going to happen. And these people were waiting for it. Here's this young 30-year-old man saying, here's what he said, here's what Isaiah said. And he's saying, I am the one coming to do this. I'm the one going to do this. Now, he said, this day is this prophecy fulfilled in your ears is what he told them. Basically, I'm the one. So he made several points to them, seven of them in particular. And I'll just go through them very quickly. First of all, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Then he said, the Lord appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Then he said, the Lord has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. And then the Lord has sent me to preach deliverance to the captives. The fifth thing he said was, the Lord has sent me to recover the sight of the blind. And then his sixth one is kind of a repeat of the, of the uh, fourth one. He said, the Lord has sent me to set at liberty them that are bruised. 
Then the final statement he makes, and he, he excludes something that Isaiah said that we'll include in this as well. He said, the Lord has sent me to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, each one of these fiats that Jesus said he was, he was and he was, was going to do would stretch the capabilities of any ordinary human being beyond their own ability to perform it. Stretch it beyond. Nobody could do what he said he had been, he had been sent to do. Now I'm going, to, I'm going to show that in just a minute. Look at the magnitude of what Jesus was claiming for himself. First of all, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. John 3.34 says that God gave him not the Spirit by measure. Didn't give him just a little bit of the Spirit. He gave him not the Spirit by measure. Gave him all of the Spirit. All of the Holy Spirit was on Jesus. These people would understand that when they were reading the Old Testament, that when the Spirit of God came upon an individual, it meant that they were anointed, they were appointed, they were approved, they were supplied, they, they were going to do something that God wanted them to do. For instance, when the Spirit of God came upon Samson, he could, he could do wonderful, mighty works, and he did. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon Moses, Moses could speak the words of God without having to rehearse them. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon any one of the Old Testament prophets, they could speak on the behalf of God and they could do wonderful, marvelous things. So here's this young man saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now that, that probably took them back a little bit, I would think. But he's, he's actually saying, here's something that's going to happen because God is with me. The second thing he said was that the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, the word gospel means good news. Acts 10 at verse 38 says that Jesus went about doing good. This text tells us that he, he was sent to, to uh, preach the gospel, the good news to the poor. Jesus was sent to a particular people. Now, they looked at the poor the same way we look at the poor. Now, the text does not say, and we, we have to keep this in mind, the text does not say that he sent me to preach the gospel to the indolent, to the lazy, to the beggar, to the mendicant that just wants to wander around. He's saying, the Lord has sent me to preach the gospel, good news, to the poor. Now, the poor are those people that, that are in that situation not of their own making, probably not of their own doing, but they just don't have as much as everybody else. And the poor, we look at the poor the same way they looked at the poor to a degree. When we look at the poor, we really don't look at them. We don't want to look them in the eyes. We don't, we, we want, to, don't want to consider them because they really they don't have a voice. They don't have a place in society. The poor really are sort of discounted. You don't have any stature. You don't have any position. You're not, you're not well-dressed. You're not well-possessed. You just don't have anything that would appeal to me at all. And yet, the text says, Jesus was sent to preach the good news to the poor. How could you... And I, what I said before was, this would stretch beyond the capability of most people. 
What would you be able to say to the poor that would be good news to them? What, what could you say? Times are going to be better. You're going to get on your feet again. You're going to get a new suit of clothes. You're going to have shoes without holes in them, socks without holes in them. What do you say to the poor? He's not talking to people who didn't have clean clothes. He's not talking to people that didn't have a certain degree of self-reliance or, or pride, if you want to call it, uh, within themselves. They, they, these people just didn't have what other people had. They weren't on the social ladder high enough. But Jesus was sent to talk to these people and say, things are going to get better for you. Things are going to improve for you. The gospel is what he's going to preach. They had no prospects of attention. They had no standing. They had no concern. They had no power. They were shoved aside, considered disposable, wholly ignored. Jesus said, I'm going to go talk to these people and tell them that God loves them and wants them to belong to him. I'm going to go tell them, I'm going to give them some good news. He wasn't going to tell them, I'm going to get you a better job. He wasn't going to tell them, I'm going to get you a new suit of clothes. He wasn't going to tell them, I'm going to make sure that you have plenty of money in your bank account. What he was going to tell them was, God loves you. He's concerned about you. He likes you. And he's going to make, he's going to make good things happen for you. The next thing, he, in this text was, he says, God has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. The Lord has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Now, if there was ever a noble and extremely difficult task that anybody decided they wanted to undertake, it would be this one. How do you heal the brokenhearted? How do you help someone up who has hit the ground? How do you heal someone who's been disappointed so severely by life, by friends, by parents, by neighbors, by spouses? How do you help them get over that disappointment and put their heart back together again? Broken hearted. Well, the, uh, the depressed person is hard to get up off the ground. It would test the strength of one's spirit to be able to lift them up. You know, we, we find ourselves when someone has been brokenhearted, uh, relying on cliches. Oh, the sun will come up again tomorrow. Don't worry. Everything will get better. This text says Jesus was sent to heal the brokenhearted. Someone who had been crushed by the, the actions and words of somebody else. They'd been destroyed. Maybe a child that had been abused by a parent or an uncle or a, uh, a neighbor. Maybe someone who had been left in the lurch by someone that they loved a great deal. Their hearts had been broken. I think about this this way. That if I'm going to help someone who's been broken hearted, and I want to tell you right now that I feel completely powerless to do that. But if I were to help someone who's broken hearted, who has been crushed, fragile, that's been maliciously cast aside or pur purposefully neglected, it would be like me standing with them and, and that person had a, a very precious treasure made of crystal glass. And while we're standing there, they drop it on the floor 
and the floor is made of tile and it shatters everywhere. How can I fix that for them? How can I pick all those pieces up and put them all back together and say, life is going to be alright. You just need to get over this. A cliche is not going to do it. And I can't gather all the pieces up for them. But the Bible tells me, Luke says, that Jesus said that His Father sent Him to heal the brokenhearted. My goodness, that's something we can't do. It's like dropping an egg with a friend. And it's a friend's egg. And you both stand there. How do you pick the egg up and put it back together for that individual? You just can't do it. But Jesus has been sent. He said, the Lord sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Now, number four, He sent me to preach the deliverance to the captives. That, we're going to save that one. Number five, He said, the Lord sent me to, to recover the sight of the blind. That, now that, again, we say, these are things that, that humanly are almost impossible. As a matter of fact, they are impossible. Now, Jesus demonstrated His ability later on to actually heal blind people. He healed a blind young man and nobody believed that he healed him except him and his parents and they finally decided, well, maybe he was healed but maybe he was healed the wrong way. But he, was, he received his, his sight back. And I think this is in John chapter 9. But the, 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 what we're saying is that Jesus was sent to recover the sight of the blind. I don't think he's talking about actual blindness. I think he's talking about people who will not see what is in front of them. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 15, he's talking to people who've closed their ears and shut their eyes. They won't see. So he was sent to open some eyes. It's a fairly simple thing to expose a person to something that they have not seen before or understood before. We can all do that. We can say, okay, here's some information you don't have. You've formed an opinion. You've, you've formulated a judgment. And you don't see this, so I'm going to show you the facts in the background. It's easy for me to do that. But it's hard to get me to see get them to see it. Because when a person formulates an opinion and a judgment on their own, they're very reluctant to to uh, surrender that judgment and say, Oh, okay, I see that now. I see what I see what you're talking about. And Jesus came to people who didn't want to see that. In spite of the plain facts, it's an entirely different thing for an individual to surrender an opinion or a judgment that they don't want to surrender. And yet Jesus was sent to open the eyes to do something that we struggle to do and fail to do, and that is to open the eyes of the blind. And then it says, He has sent me to set at liberty them that are bruised. We're going to save that one too. So we're saving two. The seventh thing is He sent me to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, In the fullness of times God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. It was time. What Jesus was saying at this point in Isaiah 61, and I mentioned a while ago that there's something in Isaiah 61 that is not in this text. And that is that He came to, he came to preach, came to teach the day of the judgment of the Lord. So, not only the acceptable year of the Lord, but the day of judgment is Isaiah 61 at verse 2. Now, Jesus is here and He's standing before these people and He's saying, it is time. 
So they have been waiting. Now you remember when the uh, when when the wise men came from the east and they were looking for the one who was born king of the Jews, the three wise men. How did they hear about Jesus? Well, they heard about it because of these little synagogues that were all over the world. Somebody had been reading the scriptures in one of these synagogues, and they'd read the book of Amos, probably Hosea and so forth, Joel too. Anyway, they'd been reading this, and these fellows had got wind of it, and they knew that something was going to happen over in this area around Bethlehem, or around Judea, Jerusalem. And so they, they went and asked questions. And the Jews said, okay, we know where it's going to be. It's going to be in Bethlehem. They knew that, that these things were going to happen because the word, the scriptures had been read all over the known civilized world in these little communities in the places called synagogues. And they knew that something was coming. They didn't know exactly when it was coming, but it was coming. And so what this young man, 30-year-old man, is saying, he's saying, I'm here, it's time. It is time. Time is now. Jesus said it's now, it's not later. He knew his purpose, and he, he came to bring it to a fast resolution. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. That was three years later. But basically what he's saying is, it's time. And he, he told his apostles, his disciples, he said, he said, this generation is not going to pass away until all things that are written shall be fulfilled. So that was within a period of a span of about 70 years. So what, I'm, what we're saying now is nobody knew the time. So here Jesus is going to do something that no other human being had the capacity to do. He's going to say, it's time. Nobody knew that. Nobody knew the time, but he did. Okay. Now, the two things in this prophecy that, that I would like to discuss are these two, two phrases or two terms. Freedom and liberty. Freedom and liberty. He came to develop, to, to, uh, he came to deliver the captives. That is, free the prisoners. And then he came to set at liberty them that are bruised. Now, the word freedom and the word liberty both share a root word. But they do, I believe, carry some different meanings. There's some variance. We know what it means to be free. We're not in somebody else's custody. We're not behind iron doors. We're not in a steel cage. We don't have shackles on our wrists, manacles on our feet or ankles. We are free. Because we've been free. We're not, we're not in custody. We're not under duress. We're not held in chains. So, he says he came to free the captive, the person that was like that. He was going to open the jail door and say, come on out. We are not under restraints if we're free. That seems to be a clear meaning, the word freedom. And it carries some of this over to the word liberty. And the word liberty actually is a little more expansive word because it means we have rights and opportunities to achieve things that we couldn't achieve before. Let's see if I can explain this. And I, I had a joke I want to tell too a while ago. Maybe I'll get back to the joke. <laughs> Anyhow, 
When people came to this country in the in the early part of or the last part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, they came mainly to a main hub of immigration. They came into the port of New York, and they came to a place called Ellis Island. They came seeking freedom and liberty. And when they got here, they went through customs, and they went through the immigration process. Then they applied for citizenship, and then they spent a period of time learning what it means to be a citizen in this country, and then taking the oath of allegiance and becoming a citizen. But when they came, they came and saw the Statue of Liberty. Now, the people that came, for the most part at that time, came, they were already free. They were not under bondage. Now, initially, when this country began, at the very beginning, back, back in the time of Columbus and, and Eric the Red and so forth, back at that time, when the, when the colonies were established, people that came to this country came under indentureship. In other words, they were indentured to get here. In order for a person to come to this country, the new country, this continent, they had to promise a certain amount of their lives would be spent paying back the person who indentured them. And some came because they were enslaved. For instance, there, were, there was a great number of slaves that came that weren't necessarily indentured. Some of them were and some weren't, but they were slaves. They were later released or freed after the Civil War. But essentially, when, when we get down to the time of the 19th and 20th century, people who came here came to Ellis Island seeking citizenship in this country. They were free. In other words, they didn't come under being indentured. They didn't come in chains. There were people who were sent from Great Britain to Australia who went because they were in chains. They were sent to Australia and then released as free people because they were criminals. They were in chains. But the people that came to this country did not come to this country in the 1900s. 1800s. They didn't come here because they were in chains. They came here because they were free. They could do that. Why, why then come to this country if you're already free? Because this country promised liberty. Opportunities to achieve goals that you might have personally and otherwise to expand yourself and to achieve things you couldn't in other places. It wasn't as if this is the only place in the world where you could be without chains. It wasn't. But it was the only place in the world where you could be at liberty to advance your own personal well-being. Okay. I think that's the difference in the two. You want to hear that joke? Uh, let's go back. <laughs> I was going to tell you, this business of, of this is the time, now is the time, it was what Jesus said. Because these, these people didn't know, but they were anxious that it was coming. Years ago, when I was a younger preacher, I had a preacher friend, and he was holding a meeting in Texas in a congregation. And uh, at that particular time, there were a lot of storms going on. A lot of uh, tornadoes tearing up the country. If you know what a tornado is, it's, it's a high wind and it's a funnel cloud that can destroy things very, very brutally. 
Anyway, this meeting, they, they, the gospel meeting at that time was usually a, a seven-night affair where, where a preacher would preach every night for about an hour or so. If, if, the, if the listeners were lucky, he'd preach about an hour. And then uh, on Sunday, he'd preach a couple of times, but that was called a gospel meeting. And this man was preaching, and he's preaching during that stormy season. The lightning was flashing, and the winds were howling, and the thunder was rolling, and everybody was kind of concerned. And, and at that time, if, if you know anything about atmospheric conditions and tornadoes, a building will kind of swell up if a tornado's close. It'll kind of swell because of the pressure inside and outside trying to achieve the same pressure. And it'll move a little bit. Well, this man was going to preach and everybody in the audience was a little concerned because the building had swelled a little bit once in a while and everything was storming outside. And he said, now, everybody calm down. Just, just be calm. He said, if you're in real danger, if, if it looks like things are going to really happen quickly, he said, I'll let you know in time for you to get out. Fair enough. So he started preaching. At that time, they wore we wore microphones around our necks with a cord that was attached. Well, about the time he got about a third of the way through his sermon, the building sort of swelled and the thunder rolled, and he he leaped off the platform and he says, "Now's the time!" And he ran down the aisle, and about halfway down the aisle, the cord caught him. And he flipped up and fell flat on his back. And everybody, nobody else had gotten up. So, and by that time, everything kind of settled down. And there he lay in the, in the middle of the aisle. And, uh, anyway, we had a lot of fun with that guy. He did get up and go back and finish, finish, finish his sermon. Anyway, I wanted to mention that because when Jesus said, now is the time, he meant it. This fellow didn't know. He wasn't really sure that that was the time. And it, as it turned out, it wasn't. But Jesus said, now is the time. And so when he said, now is the time, he meant that all of these things were coming to pass. Here was when it ought to be. So he was sent, and we've already discussed the other things. But the two things that I saved was the fact that he said he, said, he, he came to deliver the captives. It's difficult sometimes because we live in a land of the free. For us to understand that we are indeed, before we know Jesus, we are captive. We are in an iron cell. We have the bars of the door before us and the windows, and we can't get out. We can't get out. We are held captive to our own lust and our desires, and we must do what those lusts and desires compel us to do, and we can't break the chains. We can't get out. We can't take the cuffs off. We can't get the manacles off. We can't get the door open. We're in the darkness. We're in our sin. And that's what the Bible says. That's what Paul said. And sometimes it's hard for people to understand that. But you do understand it. You, do, you must know that. You must know that your, your old desires and your old lust hold you captive, and you can't break them. You say, I, 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 would like to, I would like to follow Jesus, but I, I just, I just can't, I can't give up my drinking. I can't give up my gambling. I can't give up my bad language. I can't give up my pornography. 
I can't give up my anger. I can't give up all these things. My friends, these things hold you captive. They hold you down. I can't free you from that. But I know someone that can. Jesus said He came to deliver the captives. Paul said it this way. He said, Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, His servants you are, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness, God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Sin holds us captive, holds us down. It does not let us go. We can't turn loose. Our old habits, our old desires, our old lusts just keep coming back and keep holding us back in, in a room of darkness. John 8, verse 30, 13, or 33, pardon me. Jesus was talking to some people, just like I'm talking to right now, that do not believe and did not believe they, they were held captive. We're free. We live in the U.S. of A. And we're free. Nothing holds us back. We don't have chains on our wrists. We don't have manacles on our ankles. We don't have a ball and chain behind us. We don't have the doors closed. We're in the light. Jesus met people like this. John 8, 33, they said to Jesus, We're Abraham's seed. We're never in any bondage to any man. Never. And he said, How do you say you shall be made free? Well, if you can't see where you are, if you can't see that your sins are holding you back and keeping you tight and keeping you away from that which is good and good for you, so you can get out and breathe some fresh air, that you can get away from your sins, and you can develop, and you can be a better person than you are now, if you don't believe that, it's not going to happen. Because it's faith that takes you there. In Galatians 1 verse 4, it says, Jesus gave Himself for our sins, that He might deliver us from this present evil world. How do you get out of this world? How do you break the chains? How do you, how do you take the manacles off? Jesus does what no human being can do. He rehabilitates. He delivers us from our own predilection to sin. You can overcome. He takes away our past and He shows us a bright, shiny, new future free from the restrictions of sin. He removes the chains that keep us from being the best person we can possibly be. Without shame, with no regrets, with a clean slate and a wonderful future. Jesus can give us that. Ephesians 4 verse 8 says, Wherefore, when he, set, when he ascended up on high, He led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. 2 Timothy 4.18, He said, And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work. That's what Paul said. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto His heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He said it also in Colossians 1.12, he says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into His Son. Very simple to get there. You say, well, I'm not sure that I can give up these things. You know what you're saying? You've got the manacles on. I'm not sure that I can quit. Then you name what it is. That I can quit gossiping. That I can quit hating. That I can quit saying bad things to people, that I can clean up my language. I'm not sure I can do that. I'm not sure I can do that. 
that I can follow him, that I can give up time for him. I'm not sure that can happen. Well, Jesus can do that for us. And the, very, the process that we go through is very simple. We believe that he can. You know, if you say, I, I, just, I don't think I can be a Christian. Yes, you can. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you can be. Because He'll take you to the cross and He'll say, you need to get out of your sins. You need to repent. And then you'll say, yes, I, I believe that, Lord. I believe you can do it. That's confessing His name. And then you join Him in baptism. You're buried with Him in baptism. And when you come up out of baptism, you know what happens? Your old man of sin is washed away. And you're like a butterfly coming out of a cocoon. You're free from the shackles and you're free from the constrictions of that cocoon. You're coming out of the darkness and you're coming into the light. Now you learn what is right and what's wrong. Now when we talk about freedom and when we talk about liberty, we have to talk about the fact that there are constraints. There are limits of, of what we can and cannot do. These limits have to do with what will harm us and what will harm other people. You say, well, I, I'm at liberty now. I'm free. I can do whatever I want to do. Well, that's not freedom, really. We're, we're now servants of Jesus Christ, and He shows us what to do that, that is best for us. 2 Timothy 2, verse 26 says, that they might recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are take, have taken captive by Him at His will. Okay. Let's say, let's say there's a little distinction between freedom and liberty. Freedom is you get rid of the chains, you come out of the darkness, you open the doors of the jail cell, now you're out in the open air, fresh open air, the sun's shining, you breathe freely, you don't have, you don't have any restrictions, nobody's oppressing you. Now what? You have some liberty. You can go about doing what you need to do that you couldn't have done otherwise. It says he sets at liberty them that are bruised. Did you know sin bruises you? Sin will scar you. The shackles of sin bruises and abuses our souls. It leaves marks on our hearts. It leaves scar tissue in our memories. It damages our psyche. Our past follows us. It certainly does. It changes us, and, change, and Jesus will change that for us. He will give us hope for a better existence. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 says, For as much then as the children are the partakers of the flesh and blood, he also likewise himself took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and destroy them who, and deliver them who through all their lifetime was subject to bondage. You're free when you come into Jesus Christ, when you're baptized into Him, and you rise to walk in the newness of life, the shackles are gone. Now you're at liberty. Not only staying out of the bonds, but also you're at liberty to pursue a different course of life that has no boundaries for success. There are no boundaries for success. Nothing will restrict you from achieving the greatest of the goals that you can have. And the greatest goal you can have is just live forever. Enjoy the life God has given you and just live it up and live forever. You don't have to die. You don't have to quit. 
You just move from one phase to the next. Those who die in Jesus Christ are blessed, are happy. That's liberty. The fact that we can do better than we've done in the past is liberating. It's the expectation that things will get better in our lives as we put emphasis on better things. That is the things of God. Overcoming. That's what Paul and other writers of the New Testament said. Stand fast, therefore, he said, in Galatians chapter 5 at verse 1. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't go back. It's the presence of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I know that it's, it's sometimes very hard for us to be able to continue on a, a path of doing right and doing good of being nice to people, of being considerate to people, of being courteous to people, of being around folks and being helpful to other people and exhorting people and saying good things and doing good things and helping people overcome the problems they have. I know sometimes that becomes overburdening to people. And sometimes you say, well, I think I'm just going to drop back into my old form of life. I was happier there. Well, this comes up with some. And some say, I, don't, I just don't think I can do it. I don't, think I, I don't think I can make it. You can make it with the help of the Spirit of God, with the help of Jesus Christ. He's the one that can do it for you. That's what I was saying before. I was saying that, the, that these seven things that Jesus said He could do, He can do, and I can't do them for you, but He can do them for you. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17 says, by the, the Apostle Paul says, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Are you having problems with wanting to go back and doing things you shouldn't be doing? Walk in the Spirit. The way you do this, obviously, is stay in the book. Open your heart. If you, if, if you know Jesus Christ, you know Him because you know the Word of God. He is the Word. Jesus Christ is the Word. John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. He's the Word. The Word is with God and the Word is God. So you open the book. And when you open the book, open your heart. When you open Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, get your heart open. And let Jesus come into your heart. Let Him walk with you. Let Him affect you. Let Him move you. Let Him free you. And let Him keep you free. The Spirit of Christ can, can come in your life and should. It says, for it, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The, lust, the flesh lust against the spirit, spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do that which you would. What he's saying is, keep your heart filled with the spirit. That will keep you in liberty. The Lord is that spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.17, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Your opportunities are boundless. They're boundless. And so we think of minor things. What's going to happen to my check account if I don't cheat on my taxes? What's going to happen to a relationship if I tell people the truth about myself and about things that I know? What's going to happen if I, don't, if I can't keep doing what I've been doing? The, the things that the Bible calls sinful. What's going to happen? Well, you're going to go back into jail is what's going to happen. You're going to go back into the dark is what's going to happen. You're going to get the chains back on your wrist what's going to happen. I know that there are people that are struggling with addiction, alcoholic addiction, drug addiction, 
pornography, all sorts of things. Can they recover themselves? Probably not. Somebody's going to have to stand in and help. It may be you that helps them, but more than anything else, Jesus can help. He can help. It's not an easy path to follow, but it can be done. And when it's done, if you've ever met someone who's overcome an addiction, they'll tell you that it's a far better life they live in now than the one they were living before. And the one they live now, they can live free if they'll let Jesus help them stay in that position. Blesses the man that endures temptation. When he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, James 1.12, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. So he's going to make sure that we stay free, that we are freed and that we have the liberty. He came to deliver us from the bondage of our own sinful selves. He tore off the chains. He loosed the feathers. He unlocked the prison doors. He set us free. Then he put us on a course of liberty where we can pursue, pursue a new and better way of life that will reward us richly. We can achieve within ourselves the better part of ourselves if we achieve it with Jesus Christ. He assures us that we can overcome our bad habits with the power of His Spirit in our hearts. So the major question concerning freedom and liberty is this. Can I be a better person? Take a look in the mirror. Are you who you want to be? Is that who you want to be? Is that? Take a look at your attitude. Take a look at your actions. Take a look at uh, how you've been, what you, what you say, how you act. Can you be a better person? Can you break your worst habits? Can you break those habits? Can you treat others like you'd want them to treat you? That's what Jesus said. Will Jesus and His Father through His Holy Spirit love me and help me make it? Can I be free and enjoy the liberty that I should have in Jesus Christ? Paul said that God says, yes. He says, yes, you can. 1 Corinthians 1 at verse 20. For all the promises of God in Him are yes. And in Him, amen. Under the glory of God by us. To which I say, amen. Yes, He can.